This reading is from Romans. We will resume our preaching on 1 Corinthians uh, next week when Adam returns. Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Today we take a break from our series in 1 Corinthians, as Ashley so kindly put it, because I messed up and left it in the bulletin. (laughs) She's being nice. Uh, But we do piggyback off last week and Rich's sermon on the resurrection, the hope we have as believers. The book of Romans, of course, written by Paul, was written to the church in Rome, believers. And in today's passage, we're comparing living in a broken world the suffering he's talking about, a general suffering, with the hope we believers have been given in being raised to eternal glory with God. We'll also talk a little bit about those who don't have that hope. So let's jump in. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, Paul's view is the present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glories uh, that are to come. And some folks think Paul might be doing what I call spiritual bypass. That is, ignoring the feelings of human existence, the physical and emotional pain that come with living in a broken world, but he isn't. Paul's simply elevating the enormous glory to come, the unimaginable glory that we all have to come. Paul understood pain very deeply. 2 Corinthians 11:23 through 29 contains a small sampling of his experiences. Things like hunger, thirst, Danger, imprisonment, torture, and persecution. And yet he says all that suffering can't compare with what's to come. The verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the children of God. 20. You'll notice, as uh, Rich pointed out last week, the fours here. This reminds me of the old computer programming when you first had computers and you'd write four then programs. All these connect in Paul's Uh, main theme here. For the creation was subjected to futility. That word futility, frustration. Unable to function as it should. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation to be set free. Uh, back in the Old Testament, the prophets talked about this, and as Isaiah 11, 6-9 describes this redemption of creation in that day, how it will behave. The wolf 
shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. When I was young, we used to have a saying that uh, was like that. It said, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, but the young goat won't get much sleep. <laughs> the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. It goes on to talk about a cow and a bear grazing together. A lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. It, it's talking about creation the way it was before the fall. And obviously it was a different world amongst the animals too. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Remember what happened in Genesis 3. God did not design creation to suffer. That hardship came after all was meaningful and very good. This warped, struggling existence came about when God cursed all of creation in response to human sin, Adam and Eve. In all the groaning of creation, there's a specific message being declared. You see, the more intense the pain and suffering of creation becomes, the closer we're getting to the event. Paul has cited for us the event, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Paul says the intensified pain and suffering that they are feeling just like those of childbirth. Now, any of you mothers know the pains of labor intensify. And I'm glad I'm a boy. The more intense they become, the more imminent the birth is about to happen. You measure not only the intensity, but the time between contractions and the pain. And the closer the pain and the intensity, the more likely you're getting closer to the event. Now, doesn't this put everything in a brand new perspective when it comes to pain and suffering? The world sees everything falling apart, but God says it's all coming together. We believers have a biblical view of the world, and that is physically decaying and utterly infected by sin. We groan over our life as it is now, with its suffering, depravity, sin, shortcomings, the spiritual warfare between the flesh and the Holy Spirit that has taken place in each and every one of us. There is this intense spiritual struggle that takes place where at sometimes it seems our sinful, fleshly, selfish nature is winning, and at other times the Spirit is winning. We groan for something better. The psalmist, the prophets talked about uh, groaning for longing for the day of the Lord is the phrase they used. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I want to touch on three things in this verse real quick. Rich touched on the first fruits last week, so let's review. In the Old Testament, this was the initial offering he made after the harvest. It was made in faith in anticipation of the greater harvest to come. God gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, assuring us of our inheritance to come. We groan. We're heartbroken. But we're told we don't grieve as those with no hope. We don't groan as those with no hope. Does everybody here remember Eeyore? The eternal pessimist, little donkey from Winnie the Pooh? The Eeyore Christian doesn't have a season where the weeping can turn into joy. They see all that's going wrong in their lives. They're unable to count the blessings. 
And thus, not only are they focused on the negatives, they expect everything to go wrong. It's depressing, unappealing, and unattractive. And if it is for a believer, imagine what that looks like to an unbeliever in this broken world who doesn't want any part of that. Joy is a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. When one is walking in intimacy with the Father and dwelling in the vine of Jesus, led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will indeed bear fruit in that person's life. Joy is one aspect of it, while sulking and frowning isn't. Our joy. What is our joy? Because He lives, we too shall live. And nowhere are those words expressed more profoundly than next to a loved one on their deathbed. The adoption and redemption of our body that he talks about here. This is an equivalent expression of resurrection and glorification. This is the good news. The full salvation is ours. We live in the already, but not yet. But its full benefits will not be received until Christ returns in his glory, in his time. Verse 24, for in this hope, for in this hope, right there, we are saved. We were saved. Hope that is not seen, who hopes for what he doesn't see? Or for what he has seen, excuse me. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Waiting patiently with composure separates us from the world. And I get to learn this lesson driving home when somebody's doing 25 in a 40. And I give myself the grace of going 10 over. I get to learn patience quite a bit. But we wait patiently with composure, and that separates us from the world. Having this hope inside us brings peace in a world where trouble and heartache abound. And that's as far as we're going to go in the passage today. And I've got to ask the question, what are the two things that jump out at you from this passage? Hey, I'm glad you asked. Uh, the first thing that jumps out to me is this thing, present suffering. What I call living life in a broken world in view of suffering. Before we begin that, I want to do a little warm wake-up exercise. I know it's warm. We didn't get to sing the song before... The sermon. So we're going to do a little exercise here, and it's easy. I want us to quote together the first verse of the Bible. This is one we know by heart. We probably don't need to put it up there. So everybody together, in the... Let me hear you. That's not right. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. You see, I fooled you. I fooled you. Did you know Genesis is not the first written words communicated to mankind? Job came along 400 to 600 years before Moses showed up and wrote the Pentateuch. God first communicated to mankind through the writings of Job. Now, I find all of this interesting. Because what God first chose to show us in written form about himself, wasn't it he's the Alpha and Omega, wasn't it that he was creator of the universe, sustainer of all things, the very first thing God decided to communicate in recorded writing about himself 
is that he would allow suffering and bring a man to go through the hardest, most painful, violent times of his life and teach him what it means to be faithful. Faithfulness. Richard Cecil put it this way, God's way of answering the Christian's prayer for more patience, experience, hope, and love often is to put them into the furnace of affliction. You see, there's godly lessons in life that can only be taught through suffering that no book, no class, no Ph.D. could ever teach. All suffering should remind us this is not home. We begin to build our kingdoms here. We tend to get attached to this life and tend to want to cling to its attractions. Struggling and suffering are a refining process through which every believer must pass. It forces us to trust in God. He pulls away our false securities. Then and only then can he use us to minister to a hurting world. In John 9, the man born blind, we learn a very humbling truth. When the apostles thought the man may have sinned or his parents may have sinned, why was the man born blind? The truth is that our afflictions, our troubles, our difficulties, our physical disabilities, our mental disabilities, all the problems in life and suffering are to glorify God. It's not about me. It's about God. God does not guarantee in this life peace, security, and assurance. He can guarantee to give you assurance and peace despite your circumstances if you trust Him. He offers victory in the hour of trial. Not exemption from the hour of trial. He offers you assurance in danger, not immunity from danger. God's ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. It's Jesus. Let me say that again. God's ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. It's Jesus. Suffering is a personal problem. Demands a personal response. And we have a personal Savior. As Dan mentioned next week, we're going to come to the communion table and let's put that in perspective what we're remembering. For years, we read over and over the recording of cruelty and brutality at its most wicked and senseless level in the New Testament. When the entire creation, a planet in rebellion, turned on God's own Son and mocked tortured, and then murdered him. It's strange. I I don't look up at God and say, how in the world could you have let this happen? I thank him for it. I have been given the very meaning for suffering. I have been given an explanation that satisfies the deepest parts of my soul. I have been given the explanation that satisfies the deepest part of my soul. I have learned that the suffering of God in the person of Jesus doesn't keep me out or away from God. It allows me to get in. I have learned that the suffering at its most violent and absurd level ever recorded in human history can and is turned by Him, God, into victory and eternal gladness for those who put their trust in it. I have learned from the model on suffering that God is no spectator in our pain. 
The second thing that jumped out at me in today's passage, the resurrection, being made new. Now, there's two paths to this. The first path I want to talk about is those who live in hope, what I call the good news. We read it today in verse 23. The adoption and redemption of our body is an expression of resurrection and glorification. Full salvation is ours. We live in the already but not yet. But the full prize when Christ returns will be revealed. When our bodies are raised from the dead and we're made new. It's a free gift. Grace. Unconditional love for those who trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. As we love to boast that our God is love. God is abundantly graceful and merciful and extends that love and mercy to everyone, no matter what you've done or where you're from. But, and this is a huge but, that love and mercy can be rejected. Path two, those who have no hope, dying apart from Jesus, the bad news, is what I call this. Uh, Jesus told a parable in Luke 16, beginning in verse 19 through 31. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. J.C. Ryle said this about this parable. In one respect, it stands alone in the Bible, and it deserves special attention. It is the only passage of Scripture which describes the feelings of the unrepentant after death. Let me read. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Now the term laid here is not like we picture baby Jesus being laid in the manger gently. This is a term that more likely means thrown down. He desired to be fed with all that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us there's, there's a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, so they, they be warned, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, no. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
Now, contextually, the, the meeting of the rich man and Lazarus is, is a warning to those who aren't paying any attention to the needs of others. This is in response to the Pharisees thinking and equating wealth with blessings from God and that the poor were being punished or not as worthy. And that attitude has no place in God's kingdom. But let's not get into that today. Let's get into the important thing, and that is not whether the story is true or a parable. I lean toward the parable. But the teaching behind it remains the same. Even if it's not a real story, it's realistic. Even if it's not a real story, it's truthful. In this story, Jesus plainly taught that after death, the unjust are eternally separated from God. And that they remember their rejection of the gospel. They're in torment. And that their condition cannot be remedied. It cannot be changed or undone. From our Lord's description, we learned that Hades had two sections. One called Abraham's bosom. Another term that was used in that day, paradise. And remember hearing that to Jesus' words on the cross to the thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And there was a penalty portion. Now this isn't the final judgment because we know Revelation 20.14 talks about death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. However, immediately after death, you know if you're going right and you know if you're going left. Notice that the rich man never begs to get out himself. He most likely understands he deserves to be there in what he's done. The rejection of the gospel. And what he's experiencing, he doesn't want his five brothers to ever experience. Because them coming there would make the misery even worse. In his progression, he finally gets to asking for miracles. Bear with me, we're almost done. However, miracles don't change people's hearts. Only God's word does. It's why we read and meditate on Scripture. It's alive and active, the Bible says, and has the only power to change men's hearts through the Holy Spirit, guiding us and breaking that spiritual blindness we all have, that we're all born with. The irony of the rich man wanting a miracle, someone to rise from the dead, Jesus is standing before the most hardened hearts in the history of the world, telling them this parable, pleading with them to listen. Because days later, he was going to be crucified, and he rose from the dead. And it had absolutely no effect on them. As a matter of fact, the miracle hardened them even more. Now, that's a huge lesson for us today. The message here is clear. One's eternal destiny is established at the time of death. And there's no possibility of change. The notion is pure fiction that after death, there's a purgatory that somebody can negotiate with St. Peter to get into heaven. The great gulf formed in Eden that separated man from God because of sin and bridged at Calvary is now here, eternally fixed, so that it can never be bridged or crossed. The soul in torment is beyond salvation, beyond mercy. There is no second chance. No Bible verse, or no verse in the Bible makes this any clearer. The chasm indicates the impossibility of change. Now, it's not some literal chasm or some great ditch or great gulf fix. The chasm simply indicates the impossibility 
of change whether you have the hope or you don't. In either condition. No one can pass from one to the other. If we recoil from this, we have to remember how much God must recoil with this and to bear it for all eternity. This is not what God wills for human beings. Hebrews 9.27, I'm going to read it from the Message Bible because I like the way it summed this up to sum all this up. Everyone has to die once, then face the consequences. Christ's death was also a one-time event. But it was a sacrifice that took care of sins forever. And so, when he next appears, the outcome for those eager to greet him is precisely salvation. Let's end on the good news, shall we? From beginning to end, our salvation, our election, our calling, our faith, our sanctification, our glorification, and our hope that we've talked about today is a work of divine grace. The grace of hope. You've heard Adam say it for weeks now, reading First Corinthians. It's, it's all grace. It's not because I studied or went to school or, or read the Bible. God has revealed this to me. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we'll close with this. John Piper said this one years ago, and I love it. Why are you pessimistic, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for He is a God of incomparable grace. He elects by grace. He calls by grace. He sanctifies by grace. He sustains faith by grace. And He will glorify you by grace. You cannot earn it or deserve it or be worthy of it. It's free. Believe it. Rest in it. Delight in it. And it's yours. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. It is the greatest miracle of all the miracles we ever read about in the Bible. The miracle of belief in you. It's easy to believe about the death, easy to believe about a burial. But a resurrection and what's to come takes superhuman, beyond our imagination, faith from you. And we thank you for that. Father, we ask that we take this into the broken world and preach the good news. Father, we watch the news. We, we know it's a broken world and we know it's going to end. There's many days we think this is just going to go on forever, but it's not. But we know you're a patient God. That when the flood came, that when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, that there was nobody less faithful. We still have work to do. You wait patiently. You don't wish any should perish. You wish all to repent and hear the good news. And we thank you for it. And in thanking you for it, let us go out and preach it. And share it. And live it. Through your strength. Through your power. And for your glory. Amen.
Thank you, Kevin. In closing, please stand with us and sing How Firm a Foundation. <laughs>